Hi, and welcome back to season two of the Girls Who Gather podcast, a podcast sharing women's stories from a diverse range of backgrounds and stages of life, highlighting the way they are building community, empowering other women, and walking out their calling. We are so glad you've decided to tune in. Our hope for launching this podcast is to extend the voice of Gather beyond the physical spaces where we meet in our cities, campuses, and apartments. We want to make our content even more accessible to all of you. With an incredible diversity of feminine voices, we want to create a catalog of stories, testimonies, and inspirational content that you and your friends can always return to. We will also be announcing Gathered news, updates, and other exciting events coming up on this platform. Stay tuned for more from us as we journey through this next season together. And as you listen, we encourage you to lean in and learn from some truly incredible women. Hello, my name is Kareen. I am the podcast producer here at Gather. And today I have the very special yes. privilege of hosting the episode with our very own Noelle. Hello. And so today <laughs> on the podcast, we have Amelia Lim and Farah Jabir, co-directors of Ingrained New York, a video portraiture series dedicated to amplifying intersectional, diverse and often overlooked voices and stories of, the, of New York's Asian diaspora. Amelia is a freelance documentary filmmaker and producer who has worked on projects like Netflix's Amend, The Fight for America, and Quibi's Nightgowns with Sasha Velour. A Chinese-Malaysian, Amelia is proud to call both Malaysia, where she was born and raised, and New York, where she has been living for the past six years, her home. Farah Jabir is a writer, director, and producer based in New York and Kuala Lumpur. She is a recent graduate of NYU Tisch with minors in political and environmental science, uh, areas of interest that have contributed to her affinity for, the, for humanistic, alternative, and impact storytelling. She's a fellow at Mentorship Matters, and most recently, her feature pitch, Tigers Don't Sleep, was selected as a finalist at Impact X Netflix. She is in pre-production for her short film, Kokomo, shooting later this summer, and her work places a heavy focus on empathy and intimacy. Welcome, both yes, of please. you. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Happy to be here. Okay, so let's start the conversation by just telling us, what can you tell us about mm -hmm. Ingrained? How would you describe the project? How did it all start? Um, what was the inspiration behind it? Yeah. Yeah. So I think Ingrained is essentially a video portraiture series. Um, and as you mentioned in the little bio, it's we are committed to um, interviewing in more intersectional and often overlooked voices um, of the Asian diaspora in New York. And it very much came about as a response to the anti-Asian violence and that we've seen in the past year um, with the elderly and women being attacked on the streets. Um, but and, also in response to a larger history mm, of erasure that exactly. Amelia and I talk about a lot, that I think a lot of minorities at BIPOC mm. base in America, um, with relevance to this project, Asian and an Asian diaspora in particular. Yeah, and it's so, yeah, exactly. Um, it operates as both a video portraiture series as well as kind of an, an oral history archive. slash digital archive. Um, just because there's this, you know, larger history, as Farah said, of erasure and invisibility, but also of scapegoating. And, you know, Asians are seen in this country as lacking presence and not really being seen for our stories. Um, and so we kind of wanted to subvert all of that and uplift 
and amplify those stories, especially those that haven't been um, kind of seen in mainstream media and, and mainstream narratives, essentially. And yeah, the way, yeah. the way it started, which is a story I love telling people, is because Amelia, <laughs> Amelia was walking through Chinatown and then she messaged me. And Amelia and I hadn't spoken in like maybe a year at this point because of the pandemic and some other stuff. And she was like, Far, we need to do something. She was like, Far, like I'm like this, I'm not okay. We need to do something. And mm. A week later. What were you seeing in Chinatown? What made yeah. you send the text? Yeah. So yeah. I don't think it was anything like specifically. It was more so there was this one guy who I see a lot who stands outside <laughs> this bakery in Chinatown and he plays the flute. And for some reason, I was just very drawn to him. And I like envisioned, you know, interviewing him and like being able to shoot him. <laughs> Obviously, when I did approach him, he was like, no, I'm not interested. Um, but it kind of like, it gave me the idea to like speak to more people that you see on the street who you know have stories, but don't really get uplifted enough. So so then you texted Farah and what did you say? So I, at that point, I had been going to a lot of protests um, and been shooting some material at protests, but not really knowing what to do with it. And there was a lot of coverage on it. Um, and then so we kind of, I kind of started thinking about, you know, what is the kind of larger issue here? And it is this, this theme of invisibility erasure. And so I wanted to do something that responded to that rather than this kind of sh more short term um, moment in, in history brought by a lot of Trump's policies and COVID and everything because it stretches out um, further beyond, beyond in history. Um, so, yeah. And then I messaged Farah and then Farah. <laughs> and I'm in place because I think we were all feeling a lot of these feelings and something Amelia and I talk about a lot is I think especially when there was so much like explicit violence going on we were really inundated by a lot of media and like mm. like information that sort of sent trauma and I think it was hard not to feel and carry that around all the time and so like when Amelia was like we just got to do something we got on a call and we were like, okay, well, let's do, let's do the opposite almost. Let's just like go meet a bunch of people. Let's just tell a bunch of stories. And we literally went like the week after running around Chinatown with a camera. We did our most shoots ever in that one week, but we also had no idea what we were doing. <laughs> and so to see like the scope and like how much we've done from then and how big ingrained has gotten, despite us not even launching like our first episode yet, which is, really relaunched this week actually um it's just really funny sometimes I think yeah like for for Farah and I both coming from like film journalism backgrounds um we obviously like we know what kind of a project takes and this project had no pre-production no planning we were just like it was a completely in response to what was happening and it was a very I think personal response for, for both of us yeah um, and yeah, we literally got like got on a call, and the next day we organized three shoots with ran <laughs> three random people, um, and it was so amazing. Like our second interview that we did, um, the interview subject actually cried because it was a very yeah. you know wow. tender kind of moment in 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 history in time, um, hmm. and. And yeah, and then we walked away from that day feeling very like, I guess, both overwhelmed, but also so like, I don't know, connected. And yeah. also this is coming out of COVID when, you know, we human interaction has kind of been minimized to like Zoom calls and all of that. So to have that very real connection with people that you just meet 
um, was just so impactful for us. And then we kept doing it. And it's funny because I think a lot of people have been saying to us, even yesterday they said this, they were like, you guys are like therapy. And Amelia and I always, we always tend to respond. We're like, okay, but like, I hope you realize that this is also therapy for us in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. It's been like a medium of healing for us to kind of like face a lot of our past and a lot of like stuff we've been dealing with as like Asian women and more. Um, So yeah, it's been a, it's been a very healthy, good space. Yeah, that's so awesome, ladies. I want to jump in quickly here and ask, though, a lot of these individuals that you're talking about, I mean, Chinatown in and of itself is incredibly diverse, lots of different groups of people, and even just New York City in general, where you ladies have been based for a long time, it's such a diverse landscape. So, you know, what are some of the examples of the types of people that you're meeting? Like some of the stories that you're pulling out, what do these people do? What are their you know, stations or positions of life in a city like New York, the sort of the context that you're working in. Um, and then what are mm. some of the responses to the idea that you're bringing to them? So kind of like their background and the stories they're telling, like who are they? And then also what is their response or reception of ingrained? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yes, because we wanted to subvert a lot of these kind of mainstream narratives that, you know, we are a monolith, Mm. um, and we kind of wanted to expand this umbrella term Mm. of Asian American. Um, we have been interviewing a lot of intersectional identities and voices. So that means a lot of queer Asians, Mm. um, as well as a lot of biracial Asians. Mm. We have a few, um, like one half Native American, um, half Asian, one up coming up, we have one half black, half Asian. Um, and then we also have a variety of ages. I think something that kind of switched for us was the Atlanta shooting because Mm. we had started this project like a couple weeks before that. Mm -hmm. And so when the Atlanta shooting happened, we kind of turned our attention more and our priority more towards Asian women and specific, specifically like Asian femmes, mm. um, non-binary, queer Asians, but also um, Asians in, in the service industry and mm. sex workers. We've been trying, we, wow. we have one sex worker. Um, mm-hmm. We've been trying to get kind of these, these voices more on, on the fringes of what people understand as Asian and, mm. and what kind of occupies that identity. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Like Amelia said, we've we've been very lucky to meet with people who sort of exist within the crossroads of all these various different intersectionalities. So that's meant that we've interviewed people who I also think have been very open to us. We've been yeah. very lucky with the people we've met and have had conversations because I think a lot of this in terms of having a conversation requires consent, right? And like requires openness. And so response wise I think it's been so Amelia and I have also done a lot of street casting aside from just like Instagram searches and word of mouth we've been like trying to find people that we would never have met had we not like actively like search for them like within you know I mean New York is so big you if you want to get everyone like I think exactly and something we like always talk about is like okay we're doing 50 portraits like we have to be realistic and intentional because there's no way we can say okay these are 50 Asians slash Asian Americans in New York City and they're meant to represent all of us because that's impossible to do so that's why we've been even more intentional with okay we're going to get people who come from all these different backgrounds so at least the dialogue we start with them can be more universal and reflective of like something that like many of us may be feeling um so in in that like being said 
the people we've interviewed have all been amazing and wonderful, but we have also encountered people who, through street casting, who may not be as open mm. to progressive dialogue in the way that we would like. Mm. Um, but I think that also comes with the power of the platform and knowing, okay, what voices do we want to actively work with? Mm. Um, and so in that sense, we've been selective there, but aside from that, we're like, you know, anyone you want to talk, reach out to us or we'll reach out to you and we'll take it from there. I want to, yeah. sorry, briefly, Amelia, I want to press into for both of you that tension of like balancing voices and especially for the more conservative minded individuals. And, yeah. you know, you could, again, there's sort of a parallel in many regards conversation happening in the black community and sort of reimagining the stories we tell and framing it outside of context of violence and, you know, civil rights, oppression, blah, blah, blah. But it's kind of like those voices in different camps are always in some sort of conversation. So with this ingrained project, you know, what it, what would that conversation look like? You know, elevating those yeah. more progressive voices that aren't typically seen or imagined in the API identity. But then how is that going to be put into tension, do you feel, through ingrained with more of those conservative, yeah. traditional-minded voices and, and people? Yeah, I think we've actually been very lucky with a lot of like the elders that we've interviewed too um i want to say but i think something we haven't shied away from is acknowledging things and i think it's very easy to like do a project and then just like talk about things that are only good or talk about things that like are more progressive with and like sort of like which i feel like is quite an american thing sometimes it's like we like mm -hmm. try to erase the past mm -hmm. um and i think that's some yeah that's something we are refusing to do yeah. so we are like actively saying or like well our wonderful interview subjects are actively saying like okay hey this is a problem within the community or this is something but relating it to their personal experiences because and that's how we sort of like navigate that that and like we're centering those voices without having to sort of diminish another minority group or diminish another like experience yeah Going off of that, I don't know if you want to speak about this, but my next question was about what has been most surprising so far in the creation of this project. <laughs> and I know you ran into some individuals who are <laughs> who are kind of who are, I'm just gonna say it. There's a lot of anti-blackness in the Asian community, mm -hmm. and I don't know if you want to speak specifically about the instances that you ran into and and like what that was like. Or any other, you know, if you don't want to talk about that, what other surprising mm. things have you encountered in, in this project? Yeah, I think Far and I have talked about this a lot um, in terms of whether or not we want to um, uplift people who hold these, these mm -hmm. views um, because it is, it's not uncommon in the community. And that is a reality that, as Farah mentioned, we don't want to ignore or overlook. But at the same time, it is not um, the kind of the, the reason behind this project or the, our philosophy behind it. Yeah. So when doing these street casting things, um, we have encountered some people that, you know, their one of their first questions is, what do you feel about you the Black Lives? Like, how do you feel about the Black Lives Matter movement? Mm. Because for a lot of the community, it was very it was a very tense time for them because mm. of a lot of the storefronts that um, were affected during it, 
especially during COVID with a lot of their businesses going under. And so, and there's been like a whole history of, of anti-Asian-ness in the black community, anti-blackness in the Asian community. Mm -hmm. And all of that though is, as we know now, attributed to the long history of white supremacy. And I think speaking to a lot of elders too, who are a little bit, I guess, on the fence with it. And this doesn't always take place in the actual interview, but after we spend quite a lot of time with them. And so mm-hmm. in, in that sense, when we talk about healing and this project being healing, it, it exists even when the camera is not rolling. And so we do have a lot of conversations with an elders um, specifically about um, the Black Lives Matter movement and how it is um, very much kind of the same fight that we are fighting um, with Stop Asian Hate. Yeah, or more so that Stop Asian Hate and like, we probably wouldn't have the place to even voice our like opinions and like thoughts if not for civil rights movements and if not for like every all the like people who did the work before us which was the black community right and i think in that vein we've also been like pleasantly surprised which is such an awful thing to say that to be surprised that like some of the elders we've talked to also acknowledge that Mm. and recognize that right like i i don't know why this there was this fear and assumption we had going in and like oh my god what are they gonna say yeah and i think also another thing is like we never started this project out as a purely film based project it was mm-hmm. always first and foremost a medium of healing both for our subjects and ourselves yeah. um and so that meant like when we launched on instagram we began posting a lot on our stories about supporting the black community and how our fight is often um, in connection to theirs and the whole stop Asian hate movement was completely built off of the backs of the black lives matter movement, um, especially what we saw last summer. Um, and so using that platform to, to, um, kind of guide that narrative also, and we've gotten responses to the, the things that we post on our stories, like, thank you so much for using your platform to say these things. Um, I think that that's like a super important thing, uh, important priority for us to, you know, um, pursue kind of solidarity beyond just the Asian community, which even in the Asian community, anti-Blackness and colorism is so right. Um, Yeah. And which is why, like, also we are super um, intentional with, you know, um, uplifting South Asian communities, not just uh, centering East Asian communities as has been done very, very much in the past. You know, Power between assertions of identity, it, it's its an age-old battle. And I think our generations, I will say multiple, because while we're talking about intercommunal reconciliation, I think there's also a larger conversation of intergenerational reconciliation that I think kind of what mm. your lady's work is stumbling upon is, oh, do we have allies in older generations? Like, are there is there still a, a hallway, a pathway for us to engage with them on these on these topics, present what we're mm. experiencing as a lived experience, how times have changed, but reconcile it with the past? Because when we lose, and maybe I'm biased as an anthropology graduate, you know, when we lose that piece of the past, I feel like we're we're putting our work in jeopardy, no matter what kind of activism we choose to do or what our platform or, or style of narrative and storytelling is that we we take up. Uh, But that's not actually my question. (laughs) My question is (laughs) pressing further into sort of those underlying issues between, you know, the AAPI community as it's trying to determine its identity in this new time, as well as other communities of minorities that are sort of engaging in the struggle to parse out colonial empire that passed and then sort of self-determine in this new age. 
then we unexpectedly come across um, what, how should we say this? You know, the model minority uh, issue. And mm -hmm. I wanna just throw that on the table and sort of ask you ladies, as you're doing this sort of reconciliatory research narrative work, as AIPI individuals yourself, you know, what is that role of, of understanding why there is that model minority myth? I mean, it, it has been debunked, of course, by social scientists, professionals, but what is that model minority myth what role does it play in the work that you're doing and how you're trying to to do this this work that you're doing yeah i think something you just to speak to a bit more the point you made which i like 100 percent agree with um is like it just reminds me of a few conversations we've had with people someone yesterday too where when we talk about elders and like intergenerational like um responses to all of this I think we've been trying a lot nowadays to step forward and move with empathy, which is sometimes I think we can forget to do. And I, I think talking to these people, we've realized as well that like, like a lot of our parents, just speaking for myself, like a lot of immigrant children or whatever, our parents didn't necessarily have the same privileges that we do. And like, Amelia writes very beautifully in one of our project descriptions, like um, for a lot of them, like um, like, si like survival meant silence, wow. right? And it meant like, like they didn't necessarily have the luxury to speak out about things mm -hmm. or to even know what the model minority was wow. because that was not like something they could even think about because all they could think about was surviving, right? And on that note, I will let Amelia get into the model minority because she has a lot of thoughts on this. <laughs> Break yeah. open the lid, sis, go for yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. It's a monster. <laughs> for sure. And like, I've been doing so much thinking about it and like, Laura and I have talked about, we like, yeah. this is like our, our topic shoots for our subway minutes. rides between shoots, <laughs> a casual light conversation. Yeah. Such New Yorkers. <laughs> Deconstructing the model minority myth. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think also for both of us as Asian women, we both grew up in Malaysia, um, in a British international school. And so I think mm -hmm. race was a very nuanced and operated very differently there, but in a lot of ways, similarly. And I think also this whole international kind of nature of a lot of the people we grew up with, um, moving overseas, and then also our, our parents doing the same and kind of representing mm -hmm. our families, representing the larger diaspora, um, within the Asian community. And so I think because of that, we have been taught to, um, we have been kind of conditioned to believe in the model minority myth. You know, if you work hard, you're able to go overseas and make it out there too. Um, but I think the main and touching on like, and to go back to what Farah touched on, um, which is that we don't speak enough about our issues. And I think the problem there is that we too much and this is kind of ironic um for like the asian mm. like asian cultures mm. being a collectivist society but i think the problem is that we too often individualize mm. our feelings and our struggles um and this is the entire thing with the model minority myth right we yeah. are pitted against each other and we are conditioned mm. to feel angry on our own to grieve on our own um to feel frustrated on our own um, and I think, you know, we as Asians, we see it as like embedded in our culture to, to be kind of best. strive for perfection, but that's not 
necessarily true. Yeah. And that is actually something that mm-hmm. one of our subjects said to us yesterday. Um, and so in that, we kind of attribute our own struggles and our own pain to ourselves and our own deficiencies rather than, you know, identifying that this is a systemic issue. So we mm-hmm. individualize our, our, like, our trauma in that way. And so when we talk about healing and, and solidarity um, and, and healthy relationships, um, we, we, you understand like the need to, to speak up about these things. And the reason Farah and I always say to our subjects, this is healing for us too, is because by listening to it, by like understanding yeah. that other people go through very similar um, situations, despite us being from very different places, we feel seen and we feel heard without us even having to say anything to, um, and then, and I guess, so understanding the model minority myth as a more of a systemic mm-hmm. issue rather than an individual problem. Um, we understand also that we are victim to it, but at the same time, if we stay silent, we are also complicit. Um, yeah. To lean yeah. into your point about how he- on healing and, and your own, I guess, journey through the project, how do you think your, throughout production on Ingrained, have you had any kind of new insights or reflections in your own upbringing and your own identity? And how has that changed maybe through what something someone said in an interview or just over the course of the whole period of time? I have any. Because mm-hmm. I would... Sorry, I, I mean, I would just say that, you know, like... I'm just trying to think of... The circumstances yeah. that you and I, Amelia, came to the U.S. are very different from the circumstances that I would assume some of the interviewees you're interviewing came to the U.S. Because many of them were born here, have lived here. Um, their parents were born here, maybe. And I think that, you know, that it, it it makes a difference in the way that you see your identity um, within this context as well. And I just wanted to know what, how, how you feel about all of that and how maybe what For you've sure. learned... Um, and how we relate to each other and ourselves and how we think about, yeah, our, our identity as Asians in this place. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I mentioned we, Far and I both attended international schools in Malaysia, um, which was very, education was framed through a very colonial context, despite us being, living in a post-colonial world uh, context in Malaysia. Um, and I think that in and of itself kind of, it conditioned me to think about whiteness um, or, or kind of more subconsciously think of whiteness as like the prize is the, the kind of the end goal. And when, as soon as you, your proximity to whiteness means success. Um, and this was kind of furthered for me when I moved from Malaysia to Australia, where my mom was born. Um, and I attended a Catholic boarding school in Australia where most of the student body was white. And I was one of the only Asians in the school. Um, And there was, I guess, and I didn't realize it at the time so much, but I had internalized a lot of anti-Asian hate um, towards myself. And I think this is something that has really been brought up through this project and after the Atlanta shootings, um, where I had to reckon with the parts of myself that I kind of learned to hate or create a distance from. Um, and, And yeah, and I think also after the Atlanta shooting, reckoning with being an Asian woman and I like have kind of lived my life making space for other people and in particular men and I don't think that this was so conscious um when doing it and I think it's just something that I've been kind of conditioned to to do um 
to kind of like make sure other people are comfortable before prioritizing my own emotional comfort. Um, and so when the Atlanta shooting happened and it was a very like kind of a tense moment for everyone, especially Asian women, I kind of, I decided, made a very conscious choice to to take up space for myself and to post about what I was feeling on social media, even though like it didn't really feel like it kind of came as second nature to me a little bit. And yeah. And, and something, so we have gone close to a lot of our mm-hmm. interview subjects over the course of this project. Um, and I think going into this, I was feeling quite um, uncertain about putting out such like a personal project to both ourselves, but also to the subjects. Like I wanted to do justice for everyone. Um, but also because this is like the first huge project that, you know, I've kind of undertaken as, as like the creator and, and director of it. Um, so I was, I was speaking about these doubts to one of our uh, subjects. She, uh, she's a queer Korean um, person and, and we have gotten really close um, over the course of the project. And she herself was like, okay, but, you know, your fear, don't you think it's sort of rooted in this whole model minority myth in, in the same way, mm-hmm. like this perfectionism, this whole, you can, you can never put something out because when you do, it'll be seen as like, mm-hmm. because of, you know, representation and everything, even though we say it is only half of, not even half, but like 10% of what is actually important when we, when, when we talk about justice for the Asian community. Um, because there's so little representation in the world for, for Asians, it almost feels like we are a proxy or the, the first ever to do something and I'm representing everyone. And in so my fears in kind of putting this out in the world was less it wasn't just about me. It was about the entire, like what Asian, what I would be representing as an Asian. Um, and I think she kind of told me um, to not forget it, but remember why I'm doing it um, and to kind of embrace the imperfectionism um, in the process, which is the most human part of this all. Um, and yeah, I don't know if that answered your question. And I want to appreciate too, Amelia, for a lot of those human elements that you just touched on, because this is so helpful in constructing part of my identity as an ally in different areas and communities of work and proficiency in a dialogue like this. Even if we don't immediately see ourselves connecting in a personal way to it, there is some sort of personal connection. Everything you just described, right? Like, you know, when you break through a certain ceiling or break into a new territory or take initiative in something, it's, it should feel like, oh, it's just another person in the community I am part of doing it. But there's some invisible weight of feeling like I have to represent something bigger than myself. I have to do it right. And that furthers that cycle of perfection, mm. that impulse of perfection that you touched on earlier that has sort of weaseled its way, if you will, in, into that larger API identity that is being unpacked now. Yeah. And just jumping off of that, sorry, I yeah, wanted to add. Go ahead. Um, yeah. Yeah. Going back to like my earlier point about individualizing struggle and all of that, I had always, I guess, grown up seeing my perfectionism as a positive attribute as what makes me, you know, put out good work, all of that. But I think after doing this project and realizing the more kind of systemic issues at play and that there are like larger forces that are putting me in this box, um, 
it makes me kind of want to deconstruct mm-hmm. these things and unlearn these mm-hmm. things even more so um, versus doing it just for myself and being yeah. like, oh, but it is a strength. Um, and it is, I think, to some extent. But when you view it in the framework of like what they want us to be, which is really? to work hard and to be this model minority um, to, that at the end of the day only harms and hurts other BIPOC communities. Um, yeah. It's a very, yeah, I think that was a very important realization for me. Yeah. And I think the final thing for me, ladies, I know we're rounding out our time together, but um, you know, what I also appreciate about works like Ingrained and projects like the one, the larger one, I think, Ingrained, I think you could argue is, is just one step of a larger mission that you ladies sound like you're on. And that is so incredibly inspiring. And I think about some of the this was a seed that was planted in you guys before what happened in Atlanta recently. And for those listening, if you're not aware, then with this episode, we will also be, uh, we will have a lot of resources for you to start doing some of your own research and your own uh, looking into these topics because they're incredibly important and they do impact all of us in some sort of way. But I appreciate being able to see pieces of yourself in the people who are impacted by violent acts. And, you know, speaking about the Asian women who were directly involved in the violence, their family members, their daughters, their sisters, their aunts, right, other women, and then their spouses, their fathers, their cousins, their brothers, right? When these things happen, and I'm, I'm, I don't want to parallel it because that reduces the value of what we're talking about as its own incident. But for me, when George Floyd and Black Lives Matter and a lot of issues in the Black community have been erupting over the past few years, I recognize this part of myself searching for a connection, searching for ways to plug in the different parts of my identity to sort of make sense of it and sort of draw up hidden trauma I didn't know I was carrying or hidden burdens I didn't know I was carrying. That in itself is healing, but then you put it into action as you ladies have. And it's kind of like when people are able to make some sort of attachment to a traumatic event or a violent event, that's a place to start. So for those of you listening who are new to this whole world of like activism and justice and advocacy and all these different ways, search for your point of entry. That's like the portal to relational health when you can begin to just empathize, when you can just begin to sympathize, when you can just begin to look at an event and be like, if that were just my parent, how would I feel? I also identify as this particular member of this community. How does that actually make me feel? you know, outside of my predominantly white institution and the ideas that I was taught, if I put them in a different community, how might I feel, right? You start sort of adjusting and moving around, you know, yourself as a vessel in different spaces and conversations and getting a bigger picture. And for those listening, mm. I hope our, we, I, we hope our dialogue is making sense and that this is everybody's work. Your work and your part of it will just look different. Amelia and Farah have chosen their place. They're walking in this particular space and ingrained is coming out of that. But this is not where they're going to stay. And this is not going to be something that is static, but it is dynamic and evolving. And in that, so are you. So I want (laughs) to ask you, ladies, as young activists, as young academics, the queens that you are, you've got to (laughs) maintain your sense of health, mind, body and soul. There will be more videos. There will be more violence. I I hate to say it, but that's the world we live in. How are you preparing for the sake of each other as co-laborers in this work, 
but also for yourselves. How are you maintaining your emotional, mental, physical, and relational sense of health? How are you walking through healing that you need to be doing, unpacking what you need to be unpacking so you can continue to do this work and doing it well? That's a loaded question, but I want to pose it to, mm. to even you, Kareen, if you want to answer it, because um, <laughs> you're also doing wonderful things. <laughs> Farah, yes. do you want to take this? Yeah, I think with, I think it makes a lot of sense in a lot of ways because it's through ingrained as well. You would think we learned this lesson, but as Amelia said, I think a lot of it comes from like, which is new, like to people, this sounds so easy, mm. but I think speaking for both for both of us right now what has been so hard is just for us to talk and i think that is so like ingrained ironically within our identities where <laughs> we have never been allowed in a lot of ways to just talk about how we truly feel we have never been allowed to feel we have never been allowed to complain mm. and like part of that is conditioning part of that is like amelia said the comfort of other people and always putting other people before us um, and I think through just talking a lot of times, even with each other, That's great. we have done so much healing. And I think earlier when Amelia was talking, we were talking a lot in retrospect and I, I, I don't think we gave enough time to talk about the progress that we have made. And like when we started out this project, we'd walk into people's homes and they'd be like, we'd be like uh can we should we take our shoes off like uh and they'd be like do you guys want water and we'd be like no no it's okay and wow. this past week alone amelia and i have said yes to every single person who's wow. asked us if we wanted water and that sounds like such a minor thing but to me that is like such a big accomplishment <laughs> like and like amelia did it first by the way and then i went oh wait i can ask for water now too and like you would never think, yeah exactly you would never think that that is like related to my healing or Amelia's healing in any type of way but um, oh my god it is mm, it really wow. is yeah and we talk a lot about how like we come home and we're really emotionally exhausted sometimes because in a lot of ways this feels like therapy and when you're doing therapy from like 10 a.m to like 7 p.m <laughs> it can feel like a lot but my god have we needed it have we, it really, really has forced me at least to reconcile with a lot of my own internalizing and my own pain and my own trauma in a way that like I would never have. And I've left interviews telling Amelia like, oh my God, Amelia, I wish I met her when I was 10 years old. I wish I talked to him when I was a kid. So I think talking <laughs> goes a long way. It's yeah. powerful. An age old method for reconciliation, just starting a dialogue with another human being. That's beautiful, Farah. Ooh, Amelia, yeah. please, yes. Starting a dialogue, but also like to touch on the whole, Farah's whole water story. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah like accepting help. Um, yeah, wow. Because I think at first when we started and people would kind of throw back the questions that we would ask them on camera <laughs> after we stopped wow. rolling, they'd be like, what racism have you faced? Ooh. And like, <laughs> like, uh, deep real quick we skip all the small talk so it's mm. like straight to the traumas um wow. and i think at first far and i were like kind of kept it to ourselves as we are like used to um but now we find ourselves you know saying two hours past the shoot 
when we know we shouldn't, um, yeah. but staying for dinner and having meals with these these individuals who maybe some of them we won't ever cross paths with again, maybe some of them we will, um, but embracing those connections and relationships regardless of what the kind of end goal is, yeah. just because it makes you feel connected and heard and seen, um, I think has been really valuable um, for both of us. And, but also just even between the two of us, like we yeah. both grew up together in Malaysia. We've had a very similar upbringing. Um, and so I think being able to debrief together mm. um, in a lot of ways, being able to like bounce things off of each other. Um, Far yeah. and I are like quite different in that I'm very introverted. Far is more extroverted. <laughs> what? Um, <laughs> yeah, you, you, you're both extroverts. Yeah. <laughs> more articulate. Goodness. <laughs> um, so yeah, like being she brings out um, brings me out of my shell in a lot of mm. ways, and like you know that's what people do. Like they bring out when you put yourself out there, um, good things will come. And I think from coming out of COVID, from like what was probably a dark time for everyone. Um, I have really embraced this, this like not thinking, but doing yes, mentality. Awesome. And doing also means that you can think, but think out loud, you yes. know, think yes. with the people who can support you and love you um, and who you can tell all your traumas to, um, and mm. it'll feel lighter. Mm, amazing. Okay, yeah. so just to wrap us up, because we're coming up on time, wonder if we can ask one more very short question, if I can ask you to share a little nugget of wisdom or a little short sentence of what you think a healthy, or what, what your hopes are for health in the Asian American community, what would that look like? Yeah. Bar? Hmm. I have to grab my charger, so. Yeah. Oh no. <laughs> what health would look like in the Asian American community? Within the community or maybe your relationships to the community and yeah. you want to interpret the question. Yeah. I think, wow, in one sentence, this is so funny because this is what we do to other people. And Amelia and I always joke, like, thank God we're not in front of the camera because how the hell would we react? And I <laughs> guess this, this is how we would react. Um, but I think health would be to, to fully see what we are as a community first, if that makes sense. I think everyone, it's, this is not a sentence, so bear with me here. But, yeah, everyone has this like idea of what we are, who we are, what we need to be, when in reality, none of us really have the answers, right? And we're all our own individual people with our own individual stories, but we have something collective that all unites us, which is the fact that we're all Asian and we're all Asian American or whatever. And I think part of that is recognizing we try to like some some of us try to dismiss certain things and like just like pretend things aren't there or like validate and like pedestal certain identities over the other when in reality that's really reductive. And so health for me would be if we acknowledge everything and accept it all and work from there. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how do I top that? Um, <laughs> oh, you will. No, you will. <laughs> um, I think, I think along the same lines, health for me is thinking outside of yourself or beyond yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, so like touching on what we talked about earlier about, you know, acknowledging the larger political systems at play, um, 
being able to see the things that you face as not just something that's happening to you, but happening to others too. Mm. And then reaching out and being able to have those conversations with others who are in similar positions. Um, and this goes beyond the Asian community, but to our black siblings, our Latinx um, siblings, like yeah. all BIPOC. Yeah. Um, yeah. And like in that way, in that sense, health is solidarity. Um, and yeah, that's all I will say on that. Beautiful. Very well said, Amelia. <laughs> Always. Thank you. I had more time than you. <laughs> Did you really need a charger? Are we just buying time. Oh, smooth. <laughs> All right. Thank you both so much for your time. This has been Thank amazing. You guys. Thank you for valuing us and like inviting us onto this amazing, beautiful like wellness space. We yeah. appreciate you. Yeah. And we'll keep an eye out for your first. Uh, launch this week. Follow them at, at Ingrained New York on Instagram. Thanks so much, ladies. Thank, Thank, you. Thank you. See you next time on the Girls Who Gather podcast. To all our listeners, thank you once again for tuning in. We hope you feel loved and encouraged by today's content. Be sure to stay tuned for more exciting updates and our gathered news on our Instagram at Girls Who Gather, as well as our website www.thegirlswhogather.com. Also, remember to share and subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. Be on the lookout for season updates, announcements, merch, media, meetups, and more. There is always something for you to be involved in and a place to belong. You are so loved. Until next time, bye Gather Girls!